So we're starting this new series that'll last until August. And then August, we're going to start uh, all going through this uh, book called Gentle and Lowly, incredible book. And we'll be preaching messages surrounding that. Uh, the publisher has given us 150 copies. And so we'll have them stacked on the table. And we'll start that in August. But today, part of the heart of today is, Lord, are there some things in our church, are there some traits that we want to be true of us for generations? It's kind of where we're starting. And you can say like, well, yeah, I mean, be in a church, right? <laughs> like we, we, we want to be a church that outlives us. Uh, yes, but what type of a church do we want to be that outlives us? What type of a church should we be praying into what type of a church should we be preaching into, discipling each other into? And are there almost like some dashboards, you know, as you'd have fuel and all these things on your dashboard that you're like, these things are important. And if any of these are crashing, I'm hoping I'm getting beeps and all sorts of things on the dashboard. And it's like, can we place some things on the dashboard of our church that we always want to be, you know, right here as we're moving forward. And so uh, today, what we're going to talk about is this concept called gospel-centered. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? What does that look like? And part of where this is coming from is a study that was done that was published in 2005. So what this group of people were studying was to say, if you attended a youth group, in just a random sample of churches across the United States, if you attended a youth group, what would be your experience? What would you be taught? What would you be, be encouraged to do? And so they, they did this big study of all of these youth groups. And what they were thinking also was the way that we're training the next generation is the way that the church will be in the future. Right? And so they said, by us looking at what youth groups are being taught, we'll start seeing the direction that these churches are headed. And they, and they came up with this like fancy three words that they said, this is what describes what a majority of people in youth groups are hearing right now. And it was called therapeutic moralistic deism. Therapeutic moralistic deism. So the first word, therapeutic, basically to say, if I'm sitting in church or I'm sitting in a youth group, I am experiencing free therapy. It's like, man, some people pay for counseling and I'm, I'm getting therapy. Like, hey, we, we want to help you um, with therapy, okay? So you would encounter therapy, therapeutic, and then moralistic. So you'd be hearing a lot about being a good person. Here's what bad people do. Here's what good people do. Be a good person. So, so the youth across America are hearing uh, free therapy. They're hearing a lot about being a good person. Uh, then deism. So deism is a view of God that some people find to be like a watchmaker. So it's like, I know someone made this watch. I know they didn't dig it out of the ground. I know someone made this watch, and, but I don't pretend, like I don't even imagine that they will call me every day and check on how the watch is working. They just kind of got it started. They're, they're kind of, they exist somewhere, but 
I don't have a personal relationship with the watchmaker. Um, and then as you relate that to God, a, a deist is going to say like, hey, God kind of got all this started. He created all of it. He is far away and he's coming back one day. Deism, therapeutic, moralistic deism. And so what they realized, and this was in 2005, it was kind of a wow moment, was like we just attended just thousands of youth groups, heard thousands of messages over several weeks, and what we realized is that people are getting incredible therapy, they're learning about how to be a good person, they, there's a view of God, and there's someone that they're not meeting, Jesus. Jesus is assumed, and if you are attending these youth groups, there's a high likelihood you're not meeting Jesus. So there's this movement that started, and uh, there's a group of, there's a church planting movement. It's called the Acts 29 network that we're a part of. And that network was started saying, like, hey, if God calls us to communities to plant churches, let's make sure that they're churches that are intentionally about Jesus gospel-centered churches, in the way that we train our kids, in the way that we think of church. Like, let's not have people just getting free therapy to be good, and yes, there's a God, but to actually have everything centered on the gospel, centered on Jesus. And if it's like, why don't you just say Jesus? Why are you saying the word gospel? And gospel simply just means good news. So gospel is Greek for good news, okay? And so what this good news means and what this good news is, is what today's about. Is like we need to be a church that is centered on the news of Jesus. Not the news on like, hey, get out of debt, be a good student, be good on a team, do all these good things. Those things should happen after we meet Jesus, but let's be a church that for generations are, we are centered on Jesus and centered on the gospel. So does that make sound okay if we dive into this, look at scripture on like why we should be this? And it might seem obvious. Shouldn't a church be about Jesus? <laughs> Isn't that like a, just, you know, if you just kind of like nudge a church won't it just like go straight to Jesus? And what we realize is because there's an enemy, because there's the, the flesh, because we are all sinful people, that we actually have to fight. And, and we have to be as intentional as we've been about anything else for this not to just be a religious group of people that just kind of come play at church and leave, but instead for a people that I'm not the lead pastor of this church. Jesus is the great shepherd of this church. He is the lead pastor. He is the head of the church. And what our hope is, is that he is forming us to be a gospel-centered people and to lay a foundation that that would happen for generations. And so, so where are we going to go in this? We're going to go to John chapter 3. We've sung about it. We've looked at about it. It's the most well-known verse in the New Testament and it's also one of the most overlooked and least considered, truly considered for our lives, verses of the New Testament. So John chapter 3, we've got Bibles over here. If you'd like to take one with you, we've got the verses on the screen too. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus didn't want to leave our salvation to ourselves. He didn't want to be like, well, you guys got yourself into this. You got to get yourselves out of this. None of us are good enough. None of us are smart enough. None of us are strong enough. None of us are moral enough to gain salvation. This is why John 3, 16 and 17 has to be communicated to us. I mean, how terrible would funerals be if every funeral were looking at a casket and we're, every, all of us are wondering, man, I hope they did enough. I hope their life was enough. I hope that they were good enough. I hope they were moral enough. I, I hope that they kind of figured things out well enough. Man, like God loved us too much to have us running on that hamster wheel. Loved us way too much for that. And the crazy thing is that that, though, is our, the default view of this area. More people in this area will say, hey, I'm trying to do enough. I'm trying to be good enough. And one of the realities that's been communicated to us is we are way too bad for that. The sin that runs through each of our veins, the rebellion that runs too deep inside of us that we're far worse than we ever imagined. And I mean, part of our mission as a church is to communicate bad news. <laughs> like the gospel is good news, but we actually have to do a lot of communicating bad news, which is like, hey, I know you just got all of these award, like participation trophies and stuff, but like there's actually something like really terrible about you and really terrible about me. And that is that there, there is sin that separates us from God. And it's not just this little like creek that you can jump over. It is a chasm that, that no one and nothing has ever been able to cross. And it's only been crossed once. Only been crossed once. And so for us to, to recognize like there is such bad news that we have to actually rehearse that as a church. What'd you learn at kids church today? I learned some bad news. How dare they communicate anything negative to my kids, you know? Only positive things. It's like, well, we have to go there to appreciate that there is good news. We, we have to go there with our community. And if you aren't gospel-centered, you're like, ah, uh, let's, just, let's just be warm and fuzzy and happy. It's like, well, that... That can leave us warm, fuzzy, and happy, but I need more than warm, fuzzy, and happy. I need something far deeper than warm, fuzzy, and happy. So, but as we're appreciating that we are far worse than we ever imagined. And I've, I've invited somebody to the church once, and they, um, <laughs> I was talking to them. I was just like, hey, if you don't have a home church, you know, if you aren't connected to a church, I'd love to have you visit. And they're like, I will visit because I'm starting to check out this other church in Ames, and they just tell me about my sin, tell me about separation from God, and that's so negative. 
so I'm going to come visit Sacred Mission. You know, and I was like, uh, okay, come, you know, please come. You, you may hear the same thing. You will hear the same thing. We are for, far worse than we ever imagined, and, like, and, I mean, that's like all caps, and we are way more valuable to God than we dared hope, truly. I mean, there's that song in Christmas that says, our soul found its worth. It's like, I can't believe this treasure is true. I can't believe I am this love, that God the Father so loved us, a better Father than any of us could dream being. God the Father so loved us, He sent His only Son, and He came willingly. He came willingly to live, to die, to conquer death, so that our sins would be robbed of their power. Our beef was with God, and God himself came to rescue us. Now, how can you make church about something else? How can we found the church on something else when we recognize the central reality that our beef is with God, and God himself came to fix it? God himself came to rescue us. He didn't send a low-ranking angel. If he sent like, hey, who's the uh, lowest-ranking angel here? Hey, you go. Uh, he, he didn't do that. He sent what is most precious to him. The second person of the Trinity. God sent his best, his son, into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it through him. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. Salvation is believing Jesus in this way, putting your trust in Jesus for the salvation of your soul. Uh, there was a popular book several years ago that said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I love that because even what can happen in a church and where our gauges are going to start flashing is if we say, hey, you need to trust Jesus as your, as your Savior uh, then here's the 32 things you need to stop doing right now. It's like, okay, is it Jesus plus 32 equals salvation? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now, he has a way for us to walk and follow him once we put our trust in Jesus, but a danger in our community is to try and make our whole community look like followers of Jesus without actually following Jesus. <laughs> So the clarity that we get to proclaim and the clarity that we get to live in is, uh, is a clarity of Him alone saving us. And uh, man, this is, would this be so crystal clear to us that we see it instantly when there's a drift away from this? Or when we're in a conversation, someone's like, well, I talk to the big man upstairs once in a while, and I'll go to this church over here, I'm good. And it's like, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you put your trust in Him for life? And the clarity of that, the clarity of, and this is the first, the, the first gospel-centered aspect of our church is that we'd have a gospel-centered salvation a gospel-centered salvation, and we can't afford to have anything else. We can't afford, we, we want to 
invite people to a gospel-centered salvation, not a confused salvation, a less clear salvation. We need good news, not confused news. We need to strongly resist at the well, at kids' church, when we're gathering here, when we're gathering our community groups, to strongly resist clouding the waters with therapeutic, moralistic deism. And an amazing thing with this news is like, who has access to this news? How much money do you have to give until you can access this news? I was talking to somebody a few months ago who, is, who the Lord was leading them to put their trust in Jesus, and they felt like, hey, do I have to read the whole Bible? Like, what are the prerequisites for me to accomplish before I actually give my life to Jesus? Do I have to know everything about Him? Do I have to know, could I pass some tests? Do, is there anything, and Romans 10, 13 tells us this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To my knowledge, I've said this several times, to my knowledge, this is the, one of the only verses in the Bible that God promises to answer a prayer immediately every time it's prayed. There are a lot of prayers that we pray where it's like, even we have parables about about persisting in our prayers. This one said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, bam, yes, you will be saved. You are saved. Being a good person has never saved anyone. Being Methodist has never saved anyone. Being Roman Catholic has never saved anyone. Coming to Sacred Mission Church has never saved anyone. The only thing that saved anyone who's Methodist, Roman Catholic, part of Sacred Mission Church is giving your life to Jesus, trusting Jesus as your salvation, as your Savior. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would we have a gospel-centered salvation and have a gospel-centered life? Okay, so what does it look like to have a gospel-centered salvation and then have gospel-centered lives? Because the reality is if you say, hey, I put my trust in Jesus. Jesus, I give my life to you as my Savior. Thank you. I will see you in heaven. I'm good. Go save other people. I will see you in heaven. He, he doesn't think of us this way, which is why it's so important that being a gospel-centered church that we do have a gospel-centered view of salvation, but that we have a gospel-centered view of life and what it means for us to live for a lifetime with Him. Because if we have that view that's like, I just need Jesus to save me, get me out of hell, and then I don't really need Him until at the end, I'll need Him again, that what will happen is that we will be immature in those areas for a lifetime. In that area of thinking, you could be kind of like a new Christian for 30 years because we haven't seen what it actually means to walk with Jesus and what that looks like now that, that we are following Him. Check out John 15. This verse, this chapter has been so foundational to the planting of our church. John 15, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
abide in me, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. This just fascinates me. Whenever Jesus communicates something to us, it's helpful sometimes to say, what else could he have said? He said this, but what else could he have said and why did he say this? And so, by him saying, I'm the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. He could have said, I am in the Pentagon and I am the general. Five stars. And you are the troops on the field. I will send out the commands. Obey me. He could have said that. He could have said, I am the boss. You're the employees. You work for me. He could have said that. He doesn't. He, he could have said, he could have even gotten closer and said, I'm the good coach and you're the players. Play for me. You know, be like, okay, that's closer than what most people have in like an employee relationship. He could have even gotten like really close and said, hey, I'm, I'm dad. And, and you're my kids. And, and he, he uses imagery like that. We are adopted into his family. But this is him talking about what it looks like for us to live in a relationship with him. And he feels like the, the dad-kid relationship is not close enough. Isn't that fascinating? The, the dad-kid relationship is not close enough for the way that he is inviting us to actually live with him a gospel-centered life. The, the bond is staggeringly close, and the, the, the imagery that he gives us is that he is the tree trunk and we're the branches. I mean, that is close, right? Like, I mean, if you're chainsawing stuff, like you even know, like a big branch, I mean, those fibers really are abiding in me and I in you. And man, they are, when there's a lot of weight holding that up, those fibers get to where even, I mean, I know the derecho took down a lot, but like for those giant oak trees to not be blown over, what the relationship between the trunk and the branch, and he's like, think of me that way. He uses what they were more used to was, was a vine and branches through wine. Um, and I th it's the same, though, for us to think of a tree trunk and the branches that are coming away from that, and to think of how close God considers us in relationship with Him. He's not this far away God. I mean, think of how even a branch survives, right? The nutrients have to go out to it. I mean, if you, I've, I've trimmed some, some br big branches recently, and it's even fascinating how, like, for usually about a day or two, it still looks like it's fine. I mean, the, the leaves are still full, and then all of a sudden you start to see them wilt, you know, and then you start realizing like, man, this thing is not connected to the tree anymore. And how he says in verse four, abide in me and I in you. I think instead of abide, we don't use that word very often. You could use the word remain. Remain in me, Jesus says, remain in me, as I'm remaining in you, as we live in Him, as we live with Him, as we get 
our nutrients from Him, as, as we get our stability from Him, as we get all that we need from Him, He says, stay here. Stay right here. Remain in me. I'm remaining in you. Then look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, like, can I go to Dollar General and buy like a Snickers bar apart from him? Like, I think there's a sense that it's like, yeah, now he could take me out. He could, he's in control of this world, so there's a lot that he could do, right? But is it like, you know, can I do this? Now, I I only do this, you know, he's in control of this room. The way he's saying this is anything that is eternal, anything that is truly his work, that is truly for him, that is truly transformative, that isn't just a surface level thing, but is actually a deep thing that is revolutionizing our community, that is changing our families, changing the ways we think. If our hearts typically go numb or or we go towards anger and for him to actually do surgery on our hearts and to change us and to make, make us godly fathers, godly men, godly women, that it's like we can't do any of that apart from him and apart from him actually changing us and for us to be connected to the trunk and connected to him. And man, my hope for us, looking back 20 years from now, looking back, hopefully being shocked at all that God has done through sacred mission in our community, deep addictions being broken, hopefully the darkness of meth being pushed out of our city as we're helping those people who are just totally in bondage in that right now in our community, that instead of us just driving those people away, they're meeting Jesus and being changed and we're helping to maybe re-educate them and find them new jobs and find them new ways to live and to look back and say like, he did all of this. And that's why we named the church Sacred Mission Church. Was it, it wasn't like, hey, let's do a sacred mission. Let's find out what that is. It was believing that Jesus himself is on a sacred mission for the people of central rural Iowa, and we're just joining him. We're, we just get to play along as he empowers us and changes us and makes us a light for, for the things that he is doing. Abuse, affairs, hatred. We find redemption, restoration, hope, friendships being formed that go deeper than we thought was possible. Jesus tells us in verse 5 that none of this will happen, will truly happen apart from him. And I love this by him saying, hey, apart from me, you can do nothing. The flip side of that is with him, we can do anything he calls us to. The most crazy things and be like, man, if, if with him, if he's calling us into this, man, Let's remain in him, having not just a gospel-centered view of salvation, but also living gospel-centered lives happening together in community. And as that happens together in community, the result of that is a gospel-centered church. A gospel-centered church is, that's what this distinctive means, is that everything we do as a church is centered around Jesus, the good news of Jesus abiding in him. 
And I think it's good for us to say, like, hey, I'd love for you to visit Sacred Mission Church. If you hate Jesus, you'll probably hate the church, but we'll love you here. And if you are just like, I can't stand that place. I never want to go back there. I hope what they're resisting is Jesus. And we could say, hey, the door's always open. We love you. We're trying not to say anything that Jesus isn't saying because he's calling the shots and this thing's centered on him. And, and like scripture tells us, like make Jesus be the stumbling block. Some people, I mean, he was killed for the things he was saying. And so there will be some that strongly resist it and then others will drop on their knees and say, my Lord, my God. And, and that Lord willing will be able to, to be a part of all of that. So just for clarity's sake, as, as we say, like, what does it really look like to live this out? A few questions for us. One question is, do I have a gospel-centered salvation? Do I have a gospel-centered salvation? If, if, so, if I'm just standing right before God the Father and He's like, why should I let you into heaven? If you're like, well, I try to be a good person, or, um, man, I'm better than that person. Or, I don't know why you should let me in. Or, I don't think you should let me in. All of those responses are not a gospel-centered response. And, man, I, one of my prayers for Sacred Mission Church is it would be really hard to get to hell from this room. And I know that's a strong thing to say, but the stakes are high in our community. The stakes are high here. And it's say, would we be so clear to people that they would have to intentionally say, no, I refuse to follow Jesus like that. But what we're finding in our communities, people are saying, I've never heard this before. This is new to me. I'm hearing this in a new way. And for all of us, would, would, would we not leave this room without having a gospel-centered salvation that we have put our full weight of our lives on Jesus' nail-scarred hands? He is alive and well and uh, he is leading us safely home. So, so do I have a gospel-centered salvation, and am I continuing to trust in that? Second, am I being pruned? I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves, because he is, I mean, the, the, the people who are best in an orchard aren't the people that are like, hey, we never prune our trees. We love them too much for that. You know, you're like, man, those things are not going to be all that they could be. But actually, like, it's the person who has meticulous care for the trees that is pruning it and pruning it often. And oh, we're just going to leave those down there. And so one of the questions, what I, what I find can happen sometimes is we think pruning is God punishing us. And when we experience pruning, it's like if TJ comes up to me and is like, hey, I, I've kind of picked on you today. Sorry, brother. Thank you. Um, if TJ comes up to me and is like, Tim, I've been praying, I've been searching scripture, and I, I feel like there's some verses that I see that I think you could grow in. And, um, and can I share them with you? And I think God might want to change you and change some of the things you're doing in your life. And I'm like, how dare you? Like, you don't know me. You can't, who gave, I didn't even give you the right to say that to me or whatever. You know, one of the things we learned, one of the roles of Scripture is to correct us. That's one of the roles that we say, like, it is good for correcting you, for rebuking you, for training you in righteousness. And what, what we feel like is like, man, if there's any corrective thing here, like, I need to find a different church that won't correct me. But what the Lord is telling us is because I love you, I'm going to prune you. And man, like, 
I, I feel like sometimes like when I approach a pe our peach tree with the loppers, you know, like our peach tree might be horrified, you know, and be like, oh, the mean guy is here to prune me. But instead, it's like, hey, I, I am wanting maximum fruit here. And I'm wanting this thing to be healthy. So I'm going to prune it for it to be healthy. And I think a lot of times as we experience pruning, we, we think of that as so negative, where God is thinking of it as like, I am preparing you for fruit you don't even know about yet. And man, would we be a community being a gospel-centered church and seeking to live gospel-centered lives where even asking a question, hey, do you think I'm being pruned right now? Could you come around me? Could you help me? It kind of hurts, but could you help me so that I... I keep walking with Jesus. We walk together, lock arms together so that we can bear more fruit. He's calling the shots here. And then third, so am I being pruned? Do I have a gospel-centered salvation? And then what's Jesus calling you to today? And I'm not pretending that we're all like, oh, I know of three things he's calling me to today. But to realize that when we abide in him, we can do, we can do nothing apart from him. But the things that we can do with him is, is staggering. And I think for us to just ask him, hey, are you calling me to anything that maybe would like be totally insane unless you actually worked and made it happen? And if he says, yeah, I'm calling you to this, or I think you might need to step into this, or, or maybe you need to visit this. And for us to actually be like, okay, Lord, you know, let me get people around me. Let me get people praying for me. But just if we are a community of people that are continue saying like, Lord, I'm open to what you have for me. Is there anything you are calling me to do right now? Anything you're, you're leading me into? Now, it, it'd be good. One of the blessings that we have as a community is as a community, we're seeking to be a gospel-centered, a Jesus-centered church, right? So like if if, if I went up to somebody and say, hey, I think the Lord's uh, calling me to like sell everything I have and buy a boat and live on Lake Red Rock, you know, I think they'd be like, I don't think he's calling you into that, you know, like, like let's, let's pray about it, but I'm thinking you're calling yourself into that. And that's why community is so important to say like, I feel like the Lord might, can we pray together? So for instance, like moving here and planting this church seemed to me to be the craziest thing that I could think of. But I also got really passionate about hunting, and I was hunting public land in Oklahoma, and um, I knew that there were places up here that I could hunt, and I started questioning, am I calling myself to Iowa to plant a church because I wanna hunt the rut in Iowa in November? Like that was a real question I had, and I actually brought it up to some people around me and said, if God is calling this church into existence, it will exist. If I am calling this church into existence because I want to hunt the fall in Iowa, it will not exist. And we spent two years with about 10 people specifically, and then some other people too, spent two years asking God, would you confirm this calling so Tim's not calling himself to hunt the rut in the fall? You know, I'll hunt the rut in the fall, but that's not why we're here, you know? And, um, and you know, as a whole group of people, would we be, and I'm continuing asking, like, what are you calling us into now? and abiding in you, that you would see it through, and for us to be a community that's doing that. So can I pray for us that, that we would walk this out? Lord, I thank you for bringing us here together. 
Um, we have people visiting from other churches, and, and um, Lord, I just thank you that you intentionally have each of us in this room right now. And Jesus, I thank you that you do love us this lavishly. And if the thing that you're calling some people into is to start trusting you, Lord, I pray that you would make that be such a soul-thirsty thing to them that uh, if everybody just jumped up and left right now this room, they would refuse to leave until they're leaving with you as their Savior. And Lord, would you even just form that in their heart? I, I've been there before, and, and I, I just pray that, that we would be people that are being called by you to yourself. And Lord, if there are things that you're calling us into, into relationships and marriages and even on Father's Day, um, Lord, we just give you space to make that clear to us. If you're pruning us, would you allow us to have open hands? Would you comfort us in that? Lord, would you have us be a gospel-centered church? Would you have um, the next generation be, be gospel-centered people? Lord, for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Um, Jesus, out of love for us, designed communion for us. And his design here is he said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. He said, I will, I will not take these elements physically. I will not take these elements until I take them with you at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But until then, as the body of Christ, this is a tangible way for us to commune with God, a tangible way for us to center ourselves on Jesus. And so the way that we do this here is that you'll have the bread served to you. And so you can walk up with your hands open like this. And I think Kevin and Mary will be serving it to you. They will actually look you in the eyes and say, this is the body of Jesus given for you. We take time doing that because Jesus took time doing this for each of us, giving his life for each of us. And so let that be a sacred moment. Let that be a powerful moment. Receive that. So have your hands open. Uh, then we have wine or juice. Obey your conscience there. Um, and then what we'll do is take those, go back to your seats, and then we'll take them together as family. So we can remain standing. We'll take them together as family. There are warnings in Scripture about rushing to the table without meeting with Jesus first. There are warnings in Scripture about as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, if there is unrepentant sin, if there's deeply broken relationships, that you're like, man, I think I, I should make these relationships right before taking communion. What I would encourage you, we can talk about it, pray about it, but I encourage you to make those right this week and then come to the table next week. If you are not a follower of Jesus, my encouragement to you is instead of coming to the table, come to Jesus, put the, your trust in Jesus, and then come to the table. And, um, and man, we will celebrate with you. So let's spend some moments with Jesus, and then let's come to the table.